0: Funny how? I mean funny like I'm a clown and I amuse you? First and foremost, like for some reason, my co-host just decided to tell me before we start recording that Paul Schrader's in the hospital, basically fighting for his life. So, thanks for setting the tone on this episode. Appreciate. <laughs> Sorry it. about
1: that. I mean, you know, by the time uh, by the time this is released, you know, he'll either be um, well, you know, uh, he'll, Don't things say will, <laughs> it. things will have either gone one way or they'll have gone the other. So. That's true. You know, I
0: just dated this episode. So you guys yeah. will know when we recorded it. Um, yeah. Well, we'll so, date it even further. The queen just died. <laughs> right,
1: so. right, right. Yeah, queen died yesterday. Um, RIP to a real one. You know, she was, you know, um, she was certainly a person who was afforded uh, an incredible amount of wealth and privilege for uh, no real reason. And that's that's about it. That's <laughs>
0: Dude, some of that shit on Twitter was cracking me up because I actually got on Twitter yesterday and, like, so many people were like, man, I bet Olivia Wilde's really glad the queen died. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't see that one. That's good.
0: Dude, so many people were, like, just making jokes in a- a- different ways. Like, did the studio have the queen killed so they can, like, take the dr- the drama spotlight off of their production and shit? It was hilarious. <laughs> but we have just dated our episode. But you know what? It is what it is. Uh Whatever God you pray to, pray to them now about Sh- Paul Schrader. Or, I mean, this won't matter in a week and a half. So, never mind. Don't pray to anybody. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Listen, I've got two things that I watched that we have uh, recently discussed on another episode that I want to say real quick. I will give credit where credit's due. I watched the first episode of Lord of the Rings. Mm. So, I'll tell you my two biggest problems right now is a powerful, well written uh, female protagonist and oh, people whoa, whoa, of wait, color. Wait,
1: wait, 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 wait! If that's your first problem, I'm not sure if we should air your second one.
0: <laughs> I just said it, but I think you talked over it, so I'll say it again: people oh. of color being cast as hobbits. <laughs> oh, no, now, I knew it. Huge, huge problem. Uh, okay, no, <laughs> that that was a joke I had to make. But no, seriously. Uh... I will give credit where credit's due. By the way, nobody try to take that for anything else other than a joke, okay? Anyway, (laughs) um, this show, I don't even care if it makes sense from a writing perspective, because I'm not like, I love Lord of the Rings, but I'm not like a fantasy uh, aficionado or anything. This show is the best-looking television show I have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. It is gorgeous nothing dude you said it and you said it last time we talked about it but i hadn't seen it yet nothing looks bad like the costumes the set design the makeup that fucking cave troll thing they killed um spoiler alert but that's not a big spoiler it's just a cave and a troll uh the cgi was just amazing like i i am blown away that that is a television show I think this is the closest we've come not with drama because I think like The Sopranos and The Wire and Mad Men shit like that blurs the line in terms of like drama and movies, like television and movies like from a a drama and acting like Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini was as good as like De Niro and Goodfellas or whatever like you know all those lines are blurred but when it comes to budgets as we've discussed and we don't have to rehash all of it but this is the closest I feel we've ever came to having sets and costumes and CGI that looks better. And I'm not just taking a shot to take a shot. I legitimately believe this looks better than basically every Marvel movie they put out since Endgame in terms of visuals.
1: Yeah, I mean the the I mean yeah, we talked about it last week. I mean the I think this might have the highest production value of anything that's ever existed like any any movie or tv show that's ever existed and like you know usually with the marvel shit you know you can tell they spent a lot of money on cgi but none of it is like none of it is like composed correctly and you have these like you know and game of thrones is sometimes guilty of that like not not not, not this new house of dragon show but like um you know just poor composition or just really like there's no like if you'll notice nobody on twitter is like dunking on this show for like how like look at this he this 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 broke the 180 degree camera rule or whatever or look how poorly lit this is like none of that shit applies to this show because like even aside from the kind of cgi grandeur there's also like the cinematography, which I mean, I don't know, maybe it's not technically cinematography, but it's the the visuals are just really well done, man. You have these like intense close ups of these faces that lend themselves to close ups. Right. Like it's I don't know. It's a really, really well, technically well made show. Like this is the type of if from in movie terms. Like this is the type of show that it's like, oh, yeah, this should win all the technical Oscars, you know, like it. It really is very, very impressive on, like, a technical and filmmaking level. And, like, honestly, that's enough for me. Like you said, like, I don't care about the story. I, like, I don't even really understand the story. I guess the guy that hits the earth is Gandalf, I guess. I don't know. I've only watched, um, well, I've watched the first two episodes. But the second episode doesn't clue you in on who he is. But, like, I don't even really care at this point. It's just kind of just a stunning visual TV show it, it you know, like it's just, that's enough for the price of admission for me, you know?
0: Well, two of my favorite things, a, uh, Morphid Clark, I think it's her name. That's a weird first name, but I like it. Mm. Uh, she plays the young Gladrio and I think mm. she is great so far. Um, right. but most importantly, a dude that I've thought deserved more credit. He was fantastic. in Ray Donovan season four, I think where he played a boxer, uh, I believe he pronounced his name Ismael Cruz Cordova. His first name I'm unsure I'm on. But anyway, that dude plays like the, uh, I, forget, I think it's Aaron Erender. The, the guy we get introduced to who goes off with the woman to see the burned village in the first episode. Um, right. He's great. I can't wait to see what he does. But mainly I'm just glad he's in something high profile. Because the last time I saw him in anything big was Ray Donovan. And he crushed it. Uh for, for that season. So it's cool that, uh, he he's in this as well. So, uh, I don't know, man, I I like it. I can't wait to watch, uh, new episodes and, uh, and yeah, dude, I think I'm really impressed. I mean, Amazon can rot in hell, but this is a true aesthetic achievement for television.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's going to take, you know, the, the comparison was obviously game of Thrones, you know, that was the big thing. Jeff Bezos wants his, he wants his version of Game of Thrones. And what I find really interesting about it is it is not Game of Thrones, right? Like because I expected them to just like be like, oh, this is Game of Thrones set in the Tolkien universe and someone I don't know who they were, but talked Bezos out of that, I think, because it that that is what makes it so cool. It's not like it has a visual uh, splendor that Game of Thrones never really has. And a sense of adventure, you know, but Game of Thrones, especially early on, was all about palace intrigue, right? Which is cool. I like that shit. But like, this is much more of an action series, you know, where there's like, you know, adventure and shit and action scenes. And, um, whereas Game of Thrones would have like an action episode a season, you know? But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it, um, for the most part, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if this is going to become a cultural phenomenon without the kind of uh, really interesting performances and really like I don't know with, with whatever made Game of Thrones a phenomenon I'm wondering if that can make this a phenomenon I don't know I think the jury's still out but I, I know I'll be watching I mean it's it's just it's gorgeous like you said
0: yeah, I mean, honestly, dude, I, I started watching Game of Thrones like in when they started airing season four or season five. I never really got the mass appeal of it. But I, don't get me wrong, I like the aspect of Game of Thrones. I love the, the darkness, the gritty violence, things like that. But there's also something to be said for fantasy the way Lord of the Rings is visually portrayed in terms of the movies. And like you said, the show captures it really well to where we don't always need it to be like, even though the material is kind of dark, we don't need the show to be dark and gritty. Like, so I don't know if it's gonna catch on, but I I prefer this style opposed to like that Game of Thrones style. Just me personally, so I'm happy with it. So
1: see, I, I personally like the Game of Thrones style more, but I do understand the appeal of of this because every place that everybody lives looks like paradise you know like it's like it's like their own different version of but they all look different they're all you know differently unique versions of heaven essentially and like that's cool man that it's cool it's cool to have a tv show like that that's just like yeah we're pulling out all the stops and uh the underground dwarf uh caves or whatever they look just fucking incredible and there's a there's a tree that's growing by the light of the elves inside this dude's house. And like that shit is fucking cool, man. You know, like let's, let's go, let's keep let's, let's keep it going. I hope this, hope this lasts a few seasons.
0: Yeah. And of course you say you prefer game of Thrones. Cause you, we found out you're a game of Thrones nerd who has like a map of Westeros in your house and you track you live track things, what the show is doing. So yeah, God, of course, re- of course you do.
1: I hate that label, and I hate nerd shit, but goddammit, it's true, man. I'm a fucking Game of Thrones nerd. What what has happened to me, dude? Anyway,
0: dude, look. Before we get... Because you said you did a big rewatch last night. This isn't big. I just want to say, I'm trying to get into the spirit of Halloween a little early. So I've been watching some horror movies as of late. And I gotta tell you, this movie holds up more every time I watch it. Now, you watch this... Last Not last Halloween, but the Halloween before. I believe I, I put this on a six-pack or something we did for Halloween. And uh, you liked it. Uh, the Descent from Neil Marshall. Oh, that yeah. movie gets more badass every time I watch it. And honestly, outside of a few green screen issues, like the visuals hold up really well. And I love the practical um, makeup they use for the monsters. And there's so much blood and bones and... Just so much awesome shit. That movie gets better every time I watch it. I uh if you guys have not seen it, it's on Amazon Prime. I cannot recommend this movie enough. Like it is a fantastic horror movie.
1: Well, I'm I'm just glad you mentioned it because this needs to yeah, I I saw it a couple years ago when we did an episode on it, but uh I, I really should incorporate it into my yearly Halloween viewing because uh yeah, it's 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 a great movie, man. It's also one of those great horror movies where the story like links itself really well to the what's frightening about it. You know, like this, this it's like kind of about female friendship and, you know, these two women hating each other. Like, it's really it's really a fucking good movie, like even aside from. The horror elements, which are obviously the main attraction. Um Well, I mean, that's yeah- what
0: makes it great, is like, because I know you weren't as big a fan of Dog Soldiers as I was, which is another near Marshall movie that I put on the list you watch that Halloween. Right. But I mean, this is truly his best movie. He has not returned to form th- since he made this movie, because it is, like, the the writing, the story, the drama, like, there's so many things. Like, the cave is scary. Like, being stuck in this place where you can barely turn around and like, you find out you're lost underground and you're probably going to die. That's scary before you even introduce the monsters. And you also have the story, like you're talking about of the, of the friendship with the women, but then the true betrayal of one of them, you know, sleeping with another one's husband and also like the quiet mourning of that character that you can't really, this isn't a spoiler by the way, because it's given away in the first two minutes of the film but you can't really like feel any empathy for that character because of the, the way she betrayed her friend. But I mean, mm. do everything, nothing feels contrived and that's really hard to do when it comes to not just horror movies, but writing about relationships in general. So I, that's why this movie keeps blowing my mind because it's more than just a cave monster movie. Like it's, it's so much deeper than that.
1: Yeah. It's a great movie. It's a great horror movie. Deserves to be in everybody's, uh, Halloween rotation. Definitely.
0: Yeah. And I'm hoping another movie we did an episode about is coming to theaters for the first time ever, which is crazy, which is trick or treat. That is coming to regal theaters in October. I do not know if it's going to come to my area, but if you guys like that movie and you want a chance to see it on the big screen for Halloween, check Regal's website and see if it's going to be near you in October, because the chance to see that on the big screen would is just so awesome. Because as we discussed, when we did a whole episode about it a couple of years ago, um, it never got a theatrical release, which makes literally no sense because we both agree. It's literally the best Halloween movie ever made. So it's going to be awesome to see it on the big screen.
1: Yeah. I can't believe like, it makes sense because I remember it was directed DVD at the time, but like, I just I don't know I can't believe that that was um yeah that that it's never been shown in a theater before but man that's awesome man that's uh yeah great movie another great uh another great halloween classic the best halloween classic probably
0: absolutely i mean so so i'm pumped dude we we you know halloween's just around the corner we get the uh the final movie and the new Halloween trilogy, which I've heard is going to piss a lot of people off. So I'm excited. I love the divisive nature of, of massive horror, like est- well-established types of movies. So, um, I'm excited, man. I don't even know if you ever watched the second one. A lot of people hated it. I enjoyed it because it was literally just Michael Myers murdering people like every five minutes. But I mean, yeah, I, I like what they're doing with that, with that uh, trilogy. Uh, you know, Danny McBride and all those guys.
1: Yeah, I never saw the second one. I like the I like the first remake, but I never, I never saw the second one. But uh, yeah, I'll, I might watch it. I might watch it if, especially if you tell me that the new one is good.
0: Yeah, I don't know if the new one's gonna be good because there's a time jump and there's all kind of shit that goes down apparently. But from what I from like Jamie Lee Curtis and David Gordon Green and a lot of these guys involved, um, they're saying yeah, we really expect this movie to to, to to be divisive when it comes to fans. And like, I'm not a Mike Meyer like a Michael Myers ride or die. I just like. The character, so I, that's why I'm looking forward to it because, like, I don't have a, a big dog in the fight. So,
1: I'm looking forward to it because I hope it'll give me some new ideas. You know what I mean?
0: To murder people?
1: No, yeah, no, something else. Ideas for something else, but yeah. It,
0: oh, okay, okay. No, let's
1: just, yeah. Anyways, we, we can move. I on. like.
0: Hey, I like where your head's at. You're not going to get any pushback from this guy. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> so. <laughs> Anyway, uh, you said you did a big rewatch and I want to know what it is.
1: Okay, so I did a a rewatch last night of a movie that I had seen before and um, admired, but never really fell in love with. And uh, well, let me take your temperature on it first. When's the last time or maybe have you ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rebecca?
0: I have never seen it, oddly enough. Um, I want to say for some reason I saw it when I was younger. I just don't remember it. But in that case, it doesn't count. The only thing I did was watch the remake when Netflix remade it a couple of years ago. And it was awful.
1: Yeah, I watched that, too, for some reason. And it was terrible. I do like, uh, what's her name, though? I can't remember her name.
0: Lily Uh, James?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Um,
0: And I I like Ben Wheatley. Um, We can't say we like Army Hammer anymore because he's a cannibal. But uh, <laughs> either way, the movie sucked.
1: Yeah, it was awful. Um, but uh, but yeah, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rebecca, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll do like we did last week with Licorice Pizza and give just like a little mini, um, which I know would be one-sided. But this is a movie is, that's not available for streaming, uh, unfortunately. This and a lot of other – because Hitchcock came to um, – He came to Hollywood in 1940 or right before 1940. He worked in the UK throughout the thirties and he made some really great movies there. Like uh, um, the 39 steps and the lady vanishes the man who wasn't there. the lodger is obviously a great silent classic, but you know, you watch those movies and they're just kind of, they're, they're all comedies too. They're all thriller comedies basically. And so There's just this like withering British wit and it's just kind of like none of it is to be taken very seriously at all. You know, it's it's uh, despite the fact that they're all, you know, good movies and, and entertaining and fun. But in 1940, you know, he decided to go to Hollywood and he's he signed his first contract with David O. Selznick and David O. Selznick was an independent producer uh who had left behind MGM to go start his own you know his own company and uh Gone with the Wind is probably the most famous David Oselznik production he's very hands-on producer a lot of the movies from that time period are more like if you're talking about like you know is you talking about them in auteurist terms David O. Selznick is like the director, essentially, even though he's listed as the producer, like Gone with the Wind went through like three or four directors. And I think Victor Fleming is ultimately credited for it. But really, it's a David O. Selznick movie. And he burned uh, he burned bright uh, and 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 quickly uh, bright and fast um, because his, his company didn't last that long. But he came. He, he, he put out some great movies and anyways, Hitchcock signed his first contract with David O. Selznick, you know, which makes sense. Cause it's like, he's coming off gone with the wind. He's like, I'm going to work with this guy. This guy, this guy's making the best movies in Hollywood, you know, and a lot of his movies from that time period are not available anywhere. I don't know. I don't know how the streaming rights work with that. Cause it's a Selznick movie. I don't know who owns those rights, but um, they're just not streaming anywhere. Another one is notorious, which is an incredible Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman movie.
0: Now I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's, that's one of Cary Grant's, I mean, best performances, I mean, ever. And I think one of Hitchcock's best movies, and it's just not available to stream anywhere. You know, it's kind of fucked up, but either way, Criterion released both of them. They released a really great edition of Rebecca and Notorious. So I went back and rewatched Rebecca last night and, the general plot of the movie is uh, Joan Fontaine is a woman who is kind of a, a paid uh, companion to this rich woman. She's kind of an orphan. She's not an orphan, but her parents have died and she's she's not upper class at all, but she's um, she's a, an assistant to this rich woman who's vacationing in the south of France and she meets Laurence Olivier's character. Laurence Olivier plays like a an English lord, basically, who lives in this amazing manor house called manderley and uh basically uh, uh uh what's his name um i just said his name what the fuck am i oh lawrence Olivier. lawrence olivier he basically marries her and takes her back to live with him in manderley but there's the wrinkle which is his wife uh his ex-wife died in a boating accident and she is. Uh, everybody's comparing her to the ex-wife, and it it turns it, it starts out as kind of like a woman's picture melodrama, and then it kind of turns into like this gothic horror movie once they get back to the English manor house. And it's like like a lot of Hitchcock movies. It's kind of like a genre mashup, right? Like it starts out as like you know a nineteen forties women's picture, which if anybody isn't familiar with that term that's a movie that was basically uh focused on the feelings and melodrama that like a female pr- protagonist would go through and it was marketed heavily to women other uh classics of this genre are like uh Betty Davis movies Betty Davis is in a lot of these movies now voyager is another classic um and um yeah there's uh, there's a couple others that I can't think of right now but Anyways, and so it starts out as like a woman's picture. It's like she's falling in love with Lawrence Olivier and then but then she gets back to Manderley and there's this like imperious uh servant who's like, you know, comparing her to the previous uh previous wife and it just turns into this kind of uh ghost story, not not literally, there's no supernatural elements, but it's it it turns into like this psychological thriller where this woman is like put through the ringer of like just psychological torture of being in this, this glamorous, beautiful woman's place. And she's just kind of a mousy lower class street urchin, you know, like she doesn't belong in this big, beautiful palace or whatever. And it's uh it's a haunted house movie kind of, and it's a Gothic uh, melodrama. It's just, I don't know. And I think it, it gets a lot of attention for being, uh, an early Hitchcock work. I Watching it last night, I would put it up there with Rear Window, with Vertigo, with Psycho, with all of these later later Hitchcock movies. I would put it in that same conversation because it is just so, it's just so incredible. Joan Fontaine plays um, the main character and she, she gives this amazing performance of this woman who is just, essentially just having the screws tightened on her throughout the whole movie. And Olivier has this, amazing performance it's it's a classic Olivier performance it's a little bit hammy and a little bit it's so like one thing I do want to mention is because I know you know I don't want to just monologue about this movie forever but like it can be kind of easy to dismiss these like melodramas at the time because they are melodramatic and they are dealing with big emotions and they can kind of be overwrought but like if you buy into the world in which they're taking place in it can be really moving. Like you look at Olivier's performance and you're like, oh, this is one of those 1940s performances. And you can even be confused into thinking like, oh, Olivier's character is uh, a bit misogynistic towards his wife. That's just how everybody was back then. And it's like, no, 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 that was a specific character choice. And his performance is so subtle. And so there's an insecurity to his character. Like, I don't, it's just a complete acting performance that is, it's so subtle and so it's hard to even really pinpoint exactly what he's going for, but it's, you know, and that's just one aspect of it. Olivia is not even the main fucking character. I mean, that George Sanders uh, is in it in a couple of, he's in a couple of scenes and he just absolutely just, just, I mean, it's chewing up scenery. Like there's no tomorrow in the two scenes that he's in. It's really incredible. And it's beautiful. It's shot in black and white, you know, this is 1940. So, like, this is right before Citizen Kane, right after Gone with the Wind. This is, like, prime. This is really when the factory was humming on all cylinders. And it's just the the sets are so incredible because we get to a lot of the movie is just the Joan Fontaine, like, walking through this, you know, amazing Manderley house. And... Um, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible movie. And it took me by surprise because I was like, I haven't watched the Criterion Edition of it. I haven't seen this movie in a while. I'm going to give it a rewatch. And I was just blown away. Like, I was just like, I was completely blown away. I was like, this deserves to be in the same conversation with all the other Hitchcock movies that we talk about. And this is, long-time listeners will know, I'm not even a huge fan of H- Hitchcock. And I think that outside of you know, his like masterpieces of which there are probably seven or eight, I think he really falls off as a filmmaker. But boy, when he's cooking, he is really cooking. And Rebecca is Rebecca's one of those movies. It gets a reputation of like, oh, it's his first Hollywood movie, whatever, whatever. He's still learning how to how to be a director. But like the Oh, and that's another thing I want to mention. The Criterion Edition has memos first of all it has a great essay by our boy david thompson who loves this movie um but it also has memos from hitchcock to david o selznick back and forth and they fought constantly because hitchcock was obviously an auteur and selznick was also an auteur but just he was the producer and so they battled constantly over the you know over control of this movie basically and what results is like is like hitchcock's pictorial sensibility filtered through the hollywood machine and it, it is a match made in heaven obviously because he's he stayed in hollywood and ended up making you know many uh incredible movies and it's um i don't know man shout out rebecca i did not expect to even have this much thought about rebecca i was just like oh i bought this criterion disc i should watch it and I was I was just blown away, man. It's such a great fucking movie.
0: Uh well, you know, at this point I should do what you would do to me, which is uh be an a-hole about how, oh, that was a great review, even though I hadn't seen the movie. That's why we shouldn't do this, but I won't. I'm glad you liked it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one might one might say that by saying that you actually did do that. So <laughs> um,
0: you know, one might say that. Uh, all I know is I'm pretty sure as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, you do agree with me that Kubrick is better than Hitchcock. So Jesus
1: Christ. What? You know, I, you know what? I knew this was a mistake. I don't know why <laughs> this is, you, you know what? Never mind. Let's just talk about fucking greed. You son of a bitch.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you liked Rebecca. Uh, I mean, I would have rather been watching like clockwork orange or, you know, 2001 or, or strange love, but I'm glad you like Rebecca. Um, So this week, uh, that's it.
1: That's it. We're just moving on. You motherfucker. I swear to God.
0: What do I have to say? Like, what do I have to say about Rebecca? I've never seen it. (laughs) So I'm glad you liked it, pal. I'm sure the listeners are too. Um,
1: (laughs) this is is unconscionable. You said you were going to be nice about it. Instead, you weren't nice.
0: Um, well, the Kubrick thing was a joke. Uh, just because I remember that 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 really really riled you up but uh, I, I, I sincerely I want to watch it but you just gave this great pitch for it and then basically said there's no way to watch it so I'm at a loss here um,
1: well if you're the type of person and I know you're not this type of person but if you're the type of person out there who blind buys uh Criterion movies uh knock yourself out but yeah it's not available for streaming it's a fucking tragedy I don't know maybe it might be on YouTube or something Um
0: Okay, but, I actually uh, will try to find it. I'm sure I can pirate it. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure I can get it from a legal source. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh,
1: I don't know. Anyways, yeah, I, I was like, part of me was, I didn't even expect to talk about it. I just like, I, I really was blown away. I was blown away by how much, and I'm a, you know, I'm a noted Hitchcock skeptic, but it was when, when he's cooking, you can't deny it, you know, but anyways, we can move on.
0: Yeah, no, I seriously will try to find it. I mean, and, and for those of you out there, I mean, I wouldn't blind buy it, but, you know, whatever. So,
1: you know, some people, some people blind buy Criterion. I actually like blind buying Criterion shit just because I don't know why there's a there's an odd thrill in it. You know,
0: I mean, I blind I blind bought uh, a Kurosawa movie, but I mean, it's different when you're blind buying something from a god, So I don't know. Uh, yeah,
1: that's true. Um, anyway. what, what did you blind buy of Kurosawa's? Uh,
0: his dreams movie, where he basically oh, made like a right. I think a six or eight, something like that. He made it basically based on his dreams. Uh, Martin Scorsese was in it as Van Gogh, which is hilarious and awesome. So, <laughs> Anyways. Uh, okay, so this week Jacob picked a silent movie. We have not done a silent movie in quite some time. Uh, Greed, from 1924. Uh, And uh, yeah, we watched the two hour version, uh, as we pointed out last episode. uh, If you wanted to watch it, you could hit us up on Twitter and uh, we'd send you the link just because we don't want to get it taken down from YouTube. But that is really the only place you can find the two hour version of it. Um, But anyway, why did you want us to watch this movie? Give us a little bit of history about it and uh, then we'll jump into it
1: yeah so you know eric von stroheim is a really really interesting director um you know early on a lot of people would put him on the same footing as you know dw griffith as like a new way forward for silent film um in the 20s but he's he's just got kind of a a truncated career you know he he made a couple of movies uh, some of which are lost uh foolish wives is a great one from 1922 um, and there's a couple of others. I think Queen Kelly is another one. Yeah, that's the one with, uh, what's her name? Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard. But a lot of people know him as the actor uh, in Sun- Max, Max von Meierling, which is a thinly availed version of himself uh, in that movie uh, in uh, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, he's also acts in um, Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion, which is a great movie he's He's kind of an interesting director, I mean, if you rebound the clock a hundred years ago, people would be like, "Yeah, he's clearly the greatest working director, you know, the greatest one we have and greed was supposed to be kind of a magnum opus for him, and I think his original cut was like nine hours long or something, and yeah, it's he,
0: crazy, and they they filmed it in front of like twelve people or something, like the whole ten hour version of it, which is insane,
1: right, yeah, yeah, yeah. like there's like ten people who were living, who saw the full version of greed. Because like, I mean, you got to think too. I mean, this was, you know, it's hard to envision this, but in some ways, like that era of time was more experimental than cinema is now because people just, there were no norms, right? Like there were no, like DW Griffith just made a three hour long movie or sorry, four hour long movie called intolerance and was like, can we do this? I mean, yeah, sure. Like movies weren't even really, you know, invented yet. I mean, they were invented, but you know what I mean? It was early on that people were just trying shit. And so, you know, Von Stroheim is like, let's do nine hours. Let's see if people watch this fucking thing. You know, like, 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 Hey, uh, there's
0: a lot to be said when there's no like pre-established rules and directions you can go. I mean, there's, there's a lot of shit you can do.
1: Right. Right. And it's based on a novel. So like Von Stroheim's thing was like, what if we just film the whole novel? Like, what if we just, what if we just film this novel from beginning to end? It didn't cut anything out, you know? And like, you know, I, the obvious question is like, well, who would sit there and watch it? And it's just like, they didn't know they didn't like, nobody Nobody thought people would watch an hour long movie at first, you know? So like, you know, maybe he thought maybe people would do a nine hour movie, you know? So, yeah, but the, obviously the studio was like, we can't do this. This is insane. And they cut it down And it was just a big thing. It was a whole big, uh, it was a whole big scandal and they cut it down to a two and a half hour release version. Uh, And that has been the version that has been going around since uh, up until the late nineties. Now the late nineties TCM did something which I think is admirable, but also kind of backfired in a way they wanted to recreate uh, the whole story of greed, like basically the nine hour version But they recreated it with uh, film stills, so still images, right? So like instead of a scene lasting 15 minutes, it would be like a couple of still images and a couple of um, intertitles just so you could keep track of the plot, right? And Jonathan Rosenbaum has a great quote where he said, this is is a great scholarly work, but it's not – you can't watch it. You know, like you, you just can't you can't it's a slideshow. You can't just watch this and expect to to have a good experience. But it's a it's a piece of scholarship to be like, here's an idea of what it would have been like if we had the full version, you know. But the problem is, I mean, that's that's undeniably cool that they did that. But the problem is that's the only version that's really available for streaming. That's the only version that doesn't look like shit, right? Like it's like a four hour long version that you can rent on Amazon. And like the original two and a half hour release version is just been languishing, basically. And the only way you can really watch it is on a YouTube video, which is really, really shitty quality, which I think is a shame. You know, I mean, you have Magnificent Ambersons, which is a famously truncated movie. Right. And you know, Criterion released that movie and they were, you know, like they didn't have the missing footage. They were just like, yeah, we're going to restore it. And we're going to like, you know, cause it's a great movie, even though it's cut up, you know? And I think that's the case with greed. The two and a half hour version is a great movie in and of itself. I don't, you know, I don't think we need to be like, Oh, well fuck it. Unless we have all nine hours, you know what I mean? Or all six hours or whatever, you know? So yeah, I, I think it's a great movie. I've, I've, I've watched it a few times over the years and obviously watched it, um, rewatched it for this episode. I think it's one of the best silent movies that there is, but it's, you know, it's got that history behind it and it's impossible to watch in a really nice version. You know what I mean? Like it's um, which kind of sucks, but I don't know. What is your, do you have any history with Von Stroheim or had you ever heard of this before or I don't know what's your, what's your deal with it? Or did you like the movie?
0: Well, I never heard of it before. I do know, I do know about, uh, Von Stroheim and, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about those two movies you mentioned on the podcast at, at separate occasions. Uh, so I, I, uh, I like the movie, but I feel like this movie like means more, not just when it came out. I think this is a prime example of one of those movies where it's like, it, you, if you miss the time period, you just, it's kind of hard to, to grasp, the, the full meaning of the movie. Cause I'm not saying it just mattered in 1924. I think this movie could have been considered groundbreaking all the way up to the fifties and the sixties, honestly um, with this portrayal of, of human nature and, and, and basically all the questions that it poses in the film. I did think it was interesting when I was uh, reading about it. Uh, at one point, this was, this was uh, Orson Welles's favorite movie, which I think is interesting. Right. So yeah, and and obviously I couldn't help when I was watching it, but think about the Magnificent Ambersons because that was a movie we've we've covered on this podcast before, and it was cut to shit, and there was a lot of history with it. So clearly, uh, there there is they're in the same arena when it comes to getting kind of the the short end of the stick when it comes to actually audiences being able to enjoy the real vision of the creator. This movie, though, I mean, it's 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 a very it's a simple concept, and it's not just because of the questions that it's It's a bit of a nihilistic viewpoint. But from what I've read about Von Stroheim, he is a nihilist, essentially.
1: Um, oh, 100 percent. This man yeah. was, yeah, this man was, yeah, really, really pessimistic. And the way that Hollywood treated him as an artist only made him more that way, you know?
0: So, I mean, that, that was really just to kind of see that. I love some of the imagery. I mean, some of the stuff he did in, in the, to, to, to think he was doing this in 1924, uh, with the way he framed the shots and some of it was really interesting. And, and one thing I want to say, so I don't forget that I, that I wrote down when I was doing research on the movie is the scene when she gets the money, like the scene when she finds out uh, you know, they they win a five thousand dollar lottery. She wins a five thousand dollar lottery after they get married. And basically, he's trying that. There was a there was an old man, I think the cinematographer or something, who was telling a story. It was hilarious. He was like, von Stroheim was trying to tell her what he wanted her to do, which is it's, it's the same as having an orgasm essentially. And he said <laughs> he said that von Stroheim was was trying to explain it to her on set and he was, he was acting it out, which I think is hilarious. And I would love, I, I would just kill to see footage of that as he's like showing this woman, how he wants her to react to this money, because clearly the movie's not very subtle. It's called greed uh, about how she's reacting to it. So I don't know, man, there was some really interesting things in this movie, but as I said, I don't want to discount it, but I, I don't understand why this is considered one of the greatest silent movies of all time, but I am also very underseen on silent cinema. So, I understand what he what he's trying to what what he accomplished and what he was doing, um but I mean, of all the silent movies we've covered and the ones that I've watched on my own, this is far from my favorite.
1: There's a couple of barriers to entry here, right? I mean, one of them is the fact that it's a silent movie. Let's be let's be real here. I mean, you know, silent movies are you know even the most ardent cinephiles you know don't watch a lot of silent movies um and one of the reasons for that i think is because there simply aren't that many right like there's that crazy statistic which is like 90 percent of silent films are just lost forever you know so they don't have and also they never really had a hook right like if you you know film noir has a hook for like a modern audience you know or 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 really uh, or you know really anything from the classical hollywood era or you know anything that is quote unquote outdated you know a lot of those things usually have hooks that will get them kind of niche audiences like you know fans of westerns or noirs or musicals whatever but silent movies don't really have that they're, they're I don't think they have a hook and a niche that that really you know kind of gets them in the in the mind of like you know the, the 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 common cinephile, shall we say? So I mean, that's obviously one barrier for entry. Another barrier for entry is that you know we even though I maintain that this is a great movie, regardless of how it it's cut up, um, there is the issue that it is cut up, right? It it is it is really like the story just kind of is incomplete and doesn't it makes sense and it's coherent, but it is not nearly um, as fully realized as it should be you know so that is another barrier for entry An, a third barrier for entry is you know this movie was made in 1922 you know think about dw griffith's intolerance or um you know foolish wives this was a time period when you know movies were were based on um a theme right? Like it would just be like, this movie is a meditation on greed. This movie is a meditation on intolerance. Right. And most of the silent movies that I think that most people, uh, watch from this time period are silent comedies. Right. And that is very easy. It's like, oh, that's funny or that's not right. Whereas the dramas usually get short-sighted and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think, I think on some level, there is a high barrier of entry for something like this. And there does require a level of um familiarity and sophistication, not just with movies, but also with silent movies and silent movies that are pre twenty nineteen twenty five, 1925, I would say. And, and, and non-comedy silent movies, you know, they're, you know, that the more familiar you are with non comedic silent movies, the the more you'll enjoy greed, I would say. But, aside from all those caveats and all those barriers of entry, I do still think the movie has a lot of power today. I think the, the performances are really incredible. You know, Um, I think this is comparable to like, to me, this would be like comparable to something like sunrise, even though I think sunrise eclipses this movie, like it does uh, nearly every movie ever made. But I think there's just a power in the performances. And there's also, a nihilistic like you said attitude and a pessimistic attitude that not only do you not get from a lot of movies at the time but you don't i mean you don't get a lot of movies like that period you know and you also get the flash of the budget right this was a big budget hollywood movie you know this was a big production that they you know that they shaved down to two and a half hours and So there's a lot of money spent on this and you can see it like it's set in all these different locations. There's these, this naturalistic, uh, on location, uh, shooting. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, there's a lot to admire about this movie, but I do understand that there is or that there may be a high barrier for entry, you know?
0: Well, I mean, I'll say even, even with the barrier for entry, Like, I I get that, but I think we've watched enough, I mean, you've watched more silent movies than I have, but I think we've watched enough, like even non-comedy to, to, to kind of get past that. I guess with me, I don't mean to dismiss the movie. Well, first of all, I I think it's insane how long this movie was even to begin with. And I wanted, I, I read when I was doing a little bit of reading on the film that he had about 85 hours of footage before he edited, which is insane just think about the, like, where did the film go?
1: They they would have had to have like a semi truck to carry all that film to the studio. You know,
0: that was one of the problems that they ran into. Honestly, when it comes to how they were running, it is, is basically running out of reels and film. They spent two months in death Valley. One person died, which is not surprising right. while they were in death Valley. Several people got sick, which was probably sun poisoning or uh heat stroke. Um, it's insane what they were doing. Now, I, like I said, one of the, one of the best concepts that the movie introduces that you can, you can kind of get from just watching it. There's a reason it starts the way it does. And then it gets into the, the, the story with our characters is, is something you can find if you do any reading about what he envisioned for it. Uh, one thing I liked is he, he considered it to be a Greek tragedy. And I'm a big fan of does the environment create the person or vice versa? I love mm. when, you, when you start pulling those threads and seeing does your family heritage and does your environment, especially back then when there was so much less influence from not just social media, but from other forms of media, movies, television, things like that. So you were basically molding. There's a reason why family feuds don't really exist anymore now. But if you go back a hundred years, you would kill somebody based on your grand great grandfather's interaction with their great grandfather, right which I think is really interesting and I love when you start pulling those threads. So that is one thing that I really like about that is as he's asking those questions like, was this man I mean we're gonna get into spoilers, but it is what it is. this movie's a hundred years old literally uh, was this man going was was he screwed from the beginning to do the shit he did and be obsessed with with money? and end up murdering a person? Was he basically destined to do that from the beginning? And the movie asked that question. And to me, I think that's a very deep question to be asking uh, in 1922's America. So that's one thing I love about it.
1: I mean, a question that A, has no answer, right? And B, that has been, um, confounding people since the very beginnings of western literature you know i mean you know the, the oedipus rex right it's the it's um you know the core question of uh, and and modern science has has helped us uh, uh hardly at all <laughs> with answering that question despite trying you know and yeah you know are you uh, uh, genetics are you are you born with with some of the shit that happens to you how much of it is your own free will how much of it is external um factors you know and and, and a lot
0: of that plays into does free will even exist which is my favorite like philosophical question to get into which is something this movie clearly goes on as well Is like does free will exist and i'm not talking about a hundred years ago i'm talking about now i'm talking about any time in human history is free will really a thing
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, and if it's not a thing, what, you know, if it's not a thing, and you're a determinist, what, what, what does the determining, right? Marx would say economics, you know, other Hegel would say, uh, the, the spirit that (laughs) the the spirit that uh, moves us, you know, further along through human history, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is you know, in some ways this is a highly intellectual movie on that level, but it's also very emotional. I think, I think the, there is, you know, it's pathetic in, in the, in the, the old sense of the term pathos, right? Like it's, you see the downfall of this person and it, it, it really brings you, I don't know, this, this cathartic experience, you know, but again, that cathartic experience is truncated a bit because we don't have the full story. You know, um.
0: that's probably the thing that hurt it most. I, I like I understand your entry, your barrier of entry, and all that. Like, if somebody's never watched a silent movie, don't put this on for them the first time they ever watch one. But in the event you are, you have watched a handful of silent movies, you're familiar with some of the bigger ones, and even a couple of the lesser known ones. Watching this movie in not its full form with such poor quality, that has its own challenges. Right. And I I
1: think that, you know, we, we, me and you bicker about quality sometimes, but I think quality is, is really important, especially nowadays because people are used to very high quality, right? Like if you were to watch seven samurai on VHS in 1982, you, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be tuned in to uh, seeing all of the flaws or, or what you're missing or whatever. But now, I mean, every, I mean, your phone can record in 4k, right? Like it's, we're all used to very high quality stuff so like let's say you're watching greed and like von stroheim in one scene uh puts uh something in the background to be indicative of a person's character or something like well if you're watching that on 260p on youtube on your on your tv or maybe even on your laptop like and that's blurred out like what you missed a plot element. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, yeah. it's not just a matter of like, well, I wish it was nicer to on my eyes. Like, no, like you can actually miss stuff, you know, miss um gestures of the actors, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, we're, cause we're talking about distortion. We're talking about the picture literally being distorted.
0: Well, it's funny it, because that it made me think of like when Disney plus put the Simpsons on there. And it was at first in the wrong ratio.
1: Yeah. So yeah. it That's cut out example. the
0: screen. So like you're literally missing gags that either don't let a joke land if someone's talking, or it's a visual gag that you're missing. Like right. and that completely alters the flow in every way that you are kind of watching something. I mean, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's you're yeah, it's a hundred percent. I mean, it's um you know, so yeah, that is an issue as well, and yeah, maybe I harp too much on the silent film thing, but I guess my 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 larger point is that the barrier of entry, uh, regarding the incompleteness of the story and regarding the quality, is is it's significant, I think, um, especially for those of us who, if you're a cinephile, you're used to, you know, the Criterion Collection is our is our Lord and Savior, right? You're used to being able to see this like ancient shit on these in this beautiful HD streaming service that we probably all have, you know, like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it sucks to not have greed um, be in that catalog. But I do think it is, I don't know. And like, not that, you know, not that criterion is listening to what we have to say, but part of me wants to just like, get it out there of like, Hey, you know, this is still a great fucking movie. Like, can we, I know we don't have the missing reels. You know, there's always been that fantasy of like, what have we found the missing reels to greed in like a, a a garage in Argentina. And it's like, you know, even if we don't have those, like, why don't we scrub it up a little bit? You know, why don't we, why don't we take the old toothbrush to the, the release version and see what happens, you know? But I don't know, man, What, what else did anything else come up while you were watching this? Any, any scenes that you particularly liked? I mean, I think the, you know, this is just such a, it's such a dist as it is, as it is now, the movie that it is right now in the two and a half hour version, it's such a distilled examination of, to me, the American dream and capitalism, which, you know, uh, take your shot. we mentioned capitalism on the podcast, Um, but like, you know, like just this, uh, this ever increasing need, you know, to, to be more, Right. And to be, to be, and to want more, to constantly, you know, America opens up the possibility for upward mobility. And so therefore people become obsessed with it, which is to say they become greedy to become more than they are. And, you know, that's a pretty distinctly American theme. And it's a great subject for a classic American movie, you know, and von Stroheim being an outsider, Um, you can see why he's obsessed with this and you can see why he was so taken in by this story, you know, of an Irish immigrant who, you know, is trying to make good. This motherfucker is just trying to move up in the world and Hey, no good deed goes unpunished my guy, you know?
0: And yeah. And and I do think that this movie would hit different depending on your worldview perspective, Mm -hmm. like right. Like when, when this, when this downfall starts, I do have a couple of scenes I like, but first I'll say this. When it starts and you kind of start seeing it unravel for somebody like me watching it, I'm, I'm a, I'm more of a cynic, like, you know, it's like, yeah, of course this guy will end up murdering his wife. Right. That's, that's fact. Like that, that's where the movie is going. But if you're watching it, and i know people like this if you're watching it as someone who who looks for the best in people and like has faith in humanity and like if given the option you believe a person will make the correct choice or the moral choice the morally correct choice then this movie like i can see why in 1924 this would shake you to the core and yeah. and and not just in 24 but but like i said i think i firmly think moving into the, well into the 40s and 50s this movie would still be able to surprise people and be like, Oh my God, this is so dark. Like this is like, like even though the the death happens off screen, like in our version, we don't know what version they watched. Um, it's still so heavy because this man was just, he, he was deranged by the end of it. He was like a rabid dog. And to witness that with a, with a different worldview, uh, you know, 80 or 70 years ago, this movie would really, hit you like in the soul I think
1: yeah I mean especially because like you know especially because of the 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 way in which it was made this is what this was a big Hollywood movie made for mass entertainment right and so 10 years later if you were going to make actually I'll even say five years later if you were going to make a big Hollywood movie with um mass entertainment you couldn't make a movie like this right because we had we had gotten used to the market had taken over right people want happy ending you know sunrise is a happy ending and i think sunrise is you know top 10 all time right and you know like something like that it's like even even three two or three years later it would have been like what are you talking about we can't end a movie like this like we can't make a movie like this this is hollywood this is a dream factory baby like we can't and so, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why it, it was so such a surprising and shocking thing and why so many people um, during the Hollywood years would be like, you know, like, we got a copy of Greed over at the house, you know, like some studio executive would be like, I got a copy of Greed, let's all go back and watch it, you know, and see how fucked up it is, you know, like, almost like it was a porn movie or something, you know, Um but yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it, for the time it was made and for, yeah. And for, for being mainstream entertainment, it's, it's, it's shockingly grim, you know?
0: Um, I, I want to say two, two of my favorite scenes, uh, well, first off, I just love like the interaction he has with his, with his buddy when he's like, he kissed her. Like, this is disturbing. Disturbing. She is drugged up while he's being a (laughs) dentist and he kisses her, which there's, there's more to this movie than just the, the on the surface, like greed is a problem and capitalism and the American dream and let's examine it. There's more like this guy was not a, like you could not root for this guy pretty much at any point in this movie. So he kisses her while she's passed out essentially. And then he's talking to the guy and he's like, you know, I really took a liking to her and he's like, well, you can have her. And it's like,
1: yeah, they're just trading women.
0: Yeah. They're just trading. So, so, uh, I, I really like that. That aspect was crazy. I I love when his buddy, you know, so we find out she wins 5,000 from the lottery and his buddy's like, God damn it. Like I, that should be my money. Like I, and then he gets really drunk and pissed at him at the bar and tries, he throws a fucking knife at him. He breaks his pipe. Um, that was just a really funny part. Cause it just unfolds. He's like, well, you owe me five bits for this. And he's like, Oh, okay, here you go. And he's like, you also owe me five bits for this. And he's like, I got to pay for that. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, here you go. Like, and it's just, un- he's like upset that the guy had the money to pay him on hand and it just actually makes him more mad.
1: Right. I don't know why yeah. I just thought that
0: was fucking hilarious.
1: No, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's really funny. Like, you know, because one of the other um, one of the other nicknames he had was as the man you love to hate. Cause he was also an actor, you know, Von Stroheim was. Yeah. And as a director, he kind of is that too. Like he, he, he brought that, like, everybody's a villain. You know what I mean? Everybody's like, there's like a leering, it's like, there's like a leering presence to everybody. Like they're just like, I'm trying to even think of a modern, you know, I mean, what, you know, you could say someone like Aaron maybe, but like, it's, I mean, come on, you know, like we're not even, we're not even playing the same sport at that point, but like, you know, somebody where all the characters are just like awful and evil and just like, you know, just like, just want to fucking kill each other. And like, it's just like, you can, you can, you can almost see Von Stroheim's glare like behind the camera almost like, you know how, you know how sometimes it's like, like in Spring Breakers, like the camera is like basically an erect dick almost, like it's just like you know uh, uh obsessed with the you know these women's bodies and stuff. Well, like to me, the camera in this movie is just like a glaring von Stroheim who's just like looking out on people and being like, you know, like a like a what's that guy's name in Watchmen, Rorschach. Like he's like a Rorschach as film director. You know, like look yeah, at and- these. F- Look at these fucking people, you know? <laughs> like
0: Well, ugh. I I love it because uh I I we've talked about this on the podcast. I don't know how much you agree with me or disagree with me on this, but I, I still this is my opinion. I be, like I firmly believe this. Like it drives me insane cuz I listen to a lot of movie podcasts and I listen to a lot of people talk about movies and it drives me insane when like somebody is always like I can't enjoy this movie cuz I don't have anybody to root for. It's like a movie shouldn't have to have likable characters or somebody for you to like completely identify with for you to enjoy it. So when you look at this movie, there's pretty much no characters that are like, you know, what I can get on board with that person. Even <laughs> right. the woman who clearly <laughs> was assaulted in her sleep and then traded like a piece of furniture and then murdered, even sh- you can't really identify a root for her. Like the uh, the only thing I was thinking about that woman. Halfway through the movie is like man i wish I wish he wasn't gonna end up basically end up murdering her, so I don't know, I really like that like that that is that is obviously more in in my lane anyway, but I don't know, I like that aspect of it because yeah, it is like like he uh, even in 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 the behind the scenes things I was watching, they were like, yeah, like he wanted he would literally tell the actors specifically at the end when they're fighting in in uh in Death Valley. He told them, like, I want you to fight. because like, I want you to fight like you hate each other as much as you hate me. Like, that was kind of how he ran his set. So.
1: Dude, I'm sorry, but that fucking owns, man. I mean, absolutely. I love it. That's incredible. I mean, what a goddamn What a guy, man. Eric Von Stroheim. Eric Oswald Stroheim, by the way, was his, his born name. And he changed it to Vaughn to sound cooler.
0: It does sound cooler. I wish oh, I yeah. could do that.
1: All right. So I know we're at time here, but I'm going to um, I'm going to very briefly read. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole entry, but I'm going to read the entry um, around his his silent film years. Just those paragraphs that have to do with his silent film years from our boy, David Thompson's uh, biographical dictionary of film. Oh, hell yeah. And I'll, I'll stop briefly because there's some cool information in this. But um, yeah, so uh, it says uh, Eric von Stroheim is generally known as one of the most blighted of cinema careers and yet it is hardly sensible to think of him as a victim. Much easier to see the Vaughn, the director of greed, the greatest of all lost films, and the man you love to hate, as the most fulfilling invention of Eric Oswald, the Viennese son of a German Jewish merchant and a mother who came from Prague. So it's interesting that the, 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 uh, Thompson characterizes His persona as not just an actor, but as a director, as an invention of a guy, you know, like this was this was an invented persona that that he kind of invented, not in like a fake way, but in like, a, you know, this is this is who I'm going to be, you know, uh, in in Hollywood. Uh, And then it, it goes on in later years, it suited Stroheim to claim aristocratic origins and a notable military career. But his undoubted style and persuasiveness were more the product of artistic aspiration than of any great familiarity with Austro-Hungarian high life. After brief military service, he immigrated to the United States in 1906 and went through the dark years of obscurity before reappearing in 1914 as a Hollywood hustler. For the next few years, he strove to be indispensable in the D.W. Griffith-John Emerson Empire playing bit parts in Birth of a Nation, Intolerance, and Hearts of the World, assisting Griffith whenever he could, acting as military advisor on Emerson's Old Heidelberg and getting his first credits as an art director. Uh, in 1917, in Wesley Ruggles' Old France, he established the role of the Prussian officer so central to his image. Which I think this is, this is a great point. This is, this is constructed, right? A lot of these immigrants came to Hollywood and just made lives for themselves. You know, this motherfucker passed himself off as like an aristocratic uh, Austrian who, you know, was coming to act in the movies. And it's like, dude, we have no evidence at all that he was an aristocrat, right? Like he could have been fucking kicked out of the military or deserter or not even been in the military. And then he came to Hollywood and was a military advisor. Like, this was a time period in American history and in movie history when you could just make up your own life story and like no one would question it, you know? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's,
0: it's, it's really impressive what some of those immigrants were able to do and just come over here and just kind of make a way for themselves. And that's, that's truly insane, but also awesome. Oh, it's awesome.
1: It's, it's one of my favorite things about, about early Hollywood, man. People just come on the set and just, you know, yeah, it's amazing. Um, So it says uh, Stroheim's ambition was to direct. And in 1918, he persuaded Carl Limley at Universal to let him make his own original screenplay called The Pinnacle. The result was a movie called Blind Husbands, in which Stroheim himself played Lieutenant Eric Von von Steuben. (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. The fastidious, ironic and heartless military Superman. Uh, That is a great movie, by the way. Uh, this was followed by the devil's passkey and foolish wives both for universal foolish wives again starred von stroheim as an officer cad and swindler at large in a continental playground a prestigious success it was a financial failure despite or because of universal's insistence that it should be substantially cut that foolish wives is also a great movie and i love i love how he just casts himself as this uh, 'er ne'er-do-well in all these movies like he's not casting himself as the hero he was taken off his next film merry-go-round largely because of the intervention of irving thalberg then limley's caretaker at universal uh and this is where we get to the greed stuff stroheim moved to the Goldwyn company and in 1923 shot greed from frank norris's novel mcteague it was perhaps the most injudiciously ambitious film ever made (laughs) Did Stroheim dream that his 10 hour version could be released or did he draw trouble upon himself? He could not have invented a more bitter stroke of fate than the way that as he worked on greed, the Goldwyn company became Metro Goldwyn mayor with Thalberg as one of its heads. Successive cuts reduced greed until a final release version in 1925 of 10 reels, perhaps a quarter of the original conception. So this motherfucker worked at universal and had a really bad relationship with Irving Thalberg. And then Irving Thalberg comes to work at the studio that he runs away to. Like, which is amazing. This would make an amazing TV show, by the way. Um, Like Irving Thalberg just like shows up at MGM and is like, guess who bitch? Like, and just, and just cuts down his movie from that. But anyways, I'm going to skip to the end here, which is like kind of a paragraph about his, his whole career It is hard now to see even what the studios chose to make available of Stroheim's work. But once seen greed, the wedding march and Queen Kelly, no matter how palely they reflect the originals are never forgotten. They contain the essential contradictions in Stroheim's work between melodrama and naturalism. Romanticism and cynicism Psychological detail I think that's one of the most important ones The psychological detail And epic perspectives Like all the great silent directors He knew how necessary it was To abandon taste for obsession His reckless enlargement of situations Was a form of improvisation Even if it entailed crazy expense and delay Left to himself, Stroheim might never have finished a film, so Chronic was the fever for detail. For all that he explored realism of character and delighted in location work, nonetheless, he was a captain of sudden, exquisite insights, usually into perversion, lust, malice, or pride. His films amassed detail relentlessly, but never lost sight of character or structure. Thalberg's famous verdict that Von Stroheim was a footage fetishist was truer than the producer knew for Von Stroheim was as precise as he was expansive. Despite all the hindrance Stroheim made utterly personal films, apparently enduring insult, disappointment, and reverse with a stoicism that recognized how every betrayal enhanced the identity and reputation of the Vaughn, I love that. This the all of the bad things that happened to him, every betrayal enhanced his identity and reputation, and that's exactly what happened to Orson Welles. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a a, a coincidence that you know greed was one of wells's favorite movies. Uh, in fact, I think von that's Stroheim, true. von Stroheim was almost. Uh, almost an early blueprint for Wells's career, but anyways, and here's the last sentence here, the sad nobility that gazes out of grand illusion and sunset Boulevard was as much of a part of his oeuvre as the death valley endgame of greed. So yeah, Avon Stroheim man, shout out to a real one. That motherfucker really just went to Hollywood, created a whole persona for himself, completely exiled himself from uh, uh, every possible, like, (laughs) like didn't go with the flow at all. And I don't know, man, shout out to a real one, man. We don't have directors like this anymore.
0: That's true. That is one thing to really appreciate. Even if you haven't seen a ton of his movies that he's directed or or any of that. Um, I love that attitude. I love that spirit in general, even though sometimes like it's the wrong thing to have. Uh, there's just really something uh, just unique, especially in today's like super, as I've said before, super homogenized Hollywood. Uh, it's really unique, and uh, I wish we had somebody like him these days.
1: Yeah, it's the that that spirit of noble failure, I think, is what I mostly admire in von Stroheim. It's Orson Welles is probably, is the best example, and he's one of my favorite directors, and that's that's no accident. I love just the idea of. Yeah, maybe I was a failure, but it was because of you. It wasn't because of me. It was because you thwarted my artistic genius, right? It wasn't because I am somehow deficient. And that is that is a persona and an artistic attitude that will never not be fascinating to me, or I think to most
0: people. Um, Always have a scapegoat, so you never have to take responsibility for anything. Exactly.
1: Exa- That's the takeaway here, folks. Also, it's the true. other takeaway is, you know, if, if you're if some guy or girl that you like, she's, a, you know, they're asleep, you know, they're at the dentist. And well, I'm going to cut
0: you off there. <laughs> um, just, just like with Sancho the bailiff, where the big takeaway was right. mercy is wrong all the time. Right. Um, takeaway here is never have take responsibility for anything done wrong and always have a scapegoat. Just remember that. So right. those are lessons from the silver screen video.
1: Right. And greed is good. You know, the movie and the and the attitude, the concepts, you know.
0: Absolutely. The idea that like that uh, the love of money is based on is like the root of all evil or any of that. You pitch that shit up the street because it's not <laughs> money's awesome. And if you don't have it, you want it. So and if you have
1: it, you're just focused on keeping it. So um, absolutely. You, just relentlessly pursue money in your life and nothing bad can come of it. So. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Hey, no, I I think there's tons of literature to support that. So (laughs) uh, anyway, guys, check it out. If you have listened to this episode and want to watch it and don't have the link, hit us up on Twitter. We will give it to you uh, so you can enjoy it as well. So we just like we said last time, we don't want to post it because we don't want to risk getting it taken down.
1: Yeah, the DMs are very active. um, Those of you who have requested it um hopefully you enjoyed it and um yeah if you if you want to hit us up we'll we'll
0: we'll send it to you so um absolutely well guys uh we're we're when this episode comes out we were very close to halloween so who knows what could happen here at the silver screen video so anyway
1: we we might get haunted with the ghost of uh of of cinephilia
0: uh i may have to edit that out anyway (laughs) uh guys (laughs) Don't forget, rate and review wherever you listen. Tell your friends if they like movies to listen to us. Uh, that's a huge help. Uh, wherever you listen. Doesn't have to be iTunes. It can be any app you use. All those ratings help the algorithm. So uh, please rate if you can. Uh, do you have anything to say before we get out of here? No, let's wrap it up. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week at the Silver Screen Video.